Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. Listeners have asked us to provide pointers to some of the resources we talk about on the show. We now have links to books and articles referenced in recent podcasts that are available on our website. We also offer full transcripts. Go to jimrutshow.com. That's jimrutshow.com. Today's guest is Lynn Kiesling. She's an economist focusing on regulation, market design, and the economics of digitization and smart grid technologies in the electricity industry. She's a research professor in the School of Engineering, Design, and Computing at the University of Colorado, Denver, and she's co-director of the Institute for Regulatory Law and Economics. Lynn also provides advisory and analytical services as president of Knowledge Problem, LLC, and she's an adjunct professor in the Masters of Science in Energy and Sustainability program at Northwestern University. You got a lot going on there, Lynn. Welcome to the Jim Rutt Show. (laughs) Thanks, Jim. I'm happy to be here. do have a lot going on. Lots for us to talk about. Indeed. Uh, I met Lynn at a event at the Santa Fe Institute where she gave a very interesting presentation, even though it was relatively short within the time constraints of the program that we were both on. So I thought I'd invite her here and we can do a dive into one of my favorite domains, which is the electrical grid and the things that are happening and should happen, but might not to the electrical grid in the years ahead. You know, one of the things that's particularly interesting about electricity as a product is it's got a useful life of about one microsecond. You know, it gets generated and then either distributed and used or put down into the ground. At least that was the case before there was any form of storage. What are some of the other interesting things about electricity as a product category? Well, I think if I can build from your physical grounding there, pun definitely intended, the, the fact that it, it is really only useful for about a microsecond means that when you think about it at a kind of transactional layer, supply and demand have to be in real-time balance at all times. And so that has some pretty serious implications for how we designed the grid back in the late 1890s after and I don't know if you want to talk about you know, Tesla and Edison and Westinghouse. Nah, nah, nah. nah. <laughs> we, we, we don't need that. We don't need that ancient history. Y'all can look it up. Tesla won. Just <laughs> I gave you a spoiler there, folks. Accompanied by my one of my favorite Pittsburghers, George Westinghouse. So yeah, but, but, but for the past 130 years, the architecture of the grid is, because of the alternating current nature of it, requires real-time balance between supply and demand. And what that meant in a time of mechanical systems and analog controls is that you needed to have a big central control room in order to achieve that supply-demand balance. And so you have an engineer in the control room kind of flipping switches and twiddling dials to keep that balance in, in check. Yeah, that is a very interesting thing, because if we think about it, say a large-scale grid, several states, there are 
consumption points coming on and going off all the time. You turn on your electric stove, you just flick down a, a little pull on the grid and not quite as volatile, at least not until recently. On the supply side, generators are coming on, going off, having unexpected outages, having schedule maintenance, etc. So there's this very crazy dance going on between demand and supply that's got to be balanced down to the microsecond or whatever's left over has to be grounded out into the ground. I don't know. I don't know how much is grounded out anymore, but I know it was a non-trivial amount back in the old days. Yeah. And they're in, you know, I've lived in Chicago for most of my adult life and, you know, we infamously had what were two of the, the early pioneering big power plants from Sam Insull, Fisk and Crawford, that by the 1990s, the city had grown out to where the plants were located. And so there was a a lot of environmental problem associated with those neighborhoods. But the other thing that was, was really a problem was that when they had excess generation, there were periods where they would just boil the water that was in the, you know, in the branch, in the channel going down to the Illinois River. (laughs) So... Yeah, storage, I think storage is, is going to definitely reduce our waste, right? Because that's really, really wasteful, both physically, environmentally, and economically, to be, you know, putting all the resources into generating this valuable product. But at any point in time, if you have excess, so it really isn't valuable in that moment, then you waste it. Yep. And then, especially, again, this is the old days picture, which we still sort of live in. There was basically two kinds of power generation. There was, there's base load, which is big hunking power plants that take quite a while to start up Mm -hmm. and shut down. And then there's so-called peakers that they can be turned on and off more rapidly. Some of them quite rapidly, some of them almost instantaneously, but, but not quite. And typically the base load guys are like coal plants or oil plants, not there's very many of those anymore, and nuclear plants. Hard to start up and shut down for a number of reasons, but they're quite economically efficient, at least if you don't count the externalities costs of CO2 for the coal plants. And then the peakers are, you know, they're things like used to be diesel engines. Now a lot of them are natural gas and hydro can also be a peaker if it's designed correctly. So, you know, as, pe- as you start thinking about, you know, the loads coming on in the afternoon, everybody's coming home from work, getting ready to fire up their kitchens, et cetera, or a hot day where the air conditioning is going to be a big demand. All the, the peakers start to come online based on some rationale on I suppose in theory, at least, on the ones that are most efficient coming on first and the least efficient coming on last. Is that a kind of a, a tolerable cartoon version of peakers and baseload? Yeah, I think that's a pretty good summary of, of how it works. Let me layer on some some of the economics of why that why why it is that way. The big the big honking power plants, the central central station, large scale generators like nuclear and big coal-fired power plants, they have very high fixed costs. You know, they're very capital intensive. So it takes a lot of assets to build these things. But then once you've built them, the actual additional costs that you incur to generate an additional, you know, kilowatt hour of electricity is, is really small. So it's basically your fuel costs and some labor and a little bit of other, you know, some other stuff. 
but it is just dwarfed by the the capital cost, the fixed cost of of constructing the the plant itself, and that means that those big power plants have something called economies of scale, which means that at least you know for some large amount of demand that if you have just one plant generating all that electricity, that that's going to be the lowest average cost way of doing it. And so that's why you get this concentration in the early 20th century. And I mentioned Sam Insel. He's, he's one of the guys who really pioneered and, and pushed you know, General Electric and, and others to engineer these big power plants. And it really did transform the economics of the industry. And we have that to this day. But the trade-off of that, as you say, is that it takes a while and it takes a lot of effort and a lot of, of cost to spin those guys up. And so, um, in other words, they're what we call slow ramping generators. So you, know, you don't ever want to turn those things down except for when you have to for maintenance. So you want them to run you know, as, as flat out as possible because turning them on and off is extremely time consuming and costly. Whereas for peakers, it's more like turning on and off a jet engine. And in particular, since the 1980s, the combined cycle gas turbine, which uses natural gas, is extremely energy efficient and has about half the greenhouse gas emissions of a coal-fired power plant. And it literally is a jet engine <laughs> that you could just you know, hook up to, to in a power plant and just turn on and off as needed. Got it. But now things are getting more interesting. Tell us about distributed energy resources. Well, this is I, I think of I think of this transition as you know, we and we are starting to, to socialize the idea of calling it an energy transition. And so this energy transition that we're in is fascinating because you know, we're coming from this very early 20th century notion of the electric utility as this kind of vertically integrated system. And that was Edison's idea. Edison was like, we're building a system and, you know, it's all integrated from the generator through the wires. And for him, it was even into the lighting fixtures inside the home. And, and that to some degree, I would argue, came from technological necessity that those mechanical and analog machines all had to work together and be coordinated with, with humans, humans in the loop, so to speak. And, and so there's two big areas of technological change that we've been having since the 80s. One is the big changes in generation technologies. The combined cycle gas turbine, you know, jet engine on platform was one of them. But then in the 90s, there was really substantial innovation in wind turbine technologies. And so that's one reason why wind power has proliferated the way it has is that the production costs have fallen and wind turbines have become so much more energy efficient because of a lot of innovations that happened in the 90s with the, the long blades, some of the um, composite materials that are used to make wind turbines, the way that rotors are made, you know, there's all kinds of pieces, parts that go into a wind turbine and they've all gotten better 
and improved energy efficiency. And so that means that we have more distributed wind turbines. And, and so that's, that's good from a, from a low carbon perspective. But both the, the gas turbine and the wind turbine are, are kind of larger, larger scale, what I guess we would call utility scale type technologies. Since what, what has really gotten interesting in, I guess I would say the past 15 years has been the, the falling production costs for solar photovoltaics. And you know, solar PV is a kind of mid 20th century technology. It started you know, really, really small as part of the Apollo mission. And only more recently has it been used you know, since the 1970s to generate electricity for some use other than just on spacecraft. <laughs> and so that's a much more demanding use. And so there's been a lot of innovation recently. And in the past 10 or so years, the production costs for PV panels have plummeted you know, 60% in the past decade. And, and there's a lot of interesting dynamics there. Some of it is just kind of natural innovation and entrepreneurship. Some of it is policy driven. And, you know, those two intersect. But once you have that and you can have more distributed rooftop solar panels, that's when we get into what you referred to, this idea of distributed resources. And so with PV, you have this distributed ability to generate low carbon energy and I say low carbon, not zero carbon on a life cycle basis, because of course, the, the process of producing PV panels is energy intensive. So that's, you know, still a work in progress from a, from a carbon perspective. So we've got the, the kind of distributed PV that can go on the roof of your house, the roof of your garage as a canopy over a parking lot. And you know, kind of make use of unused roof space or airspace to generate electricity. And then the other, the other really important distributed energy resource from a complementary perspective to this is the electric vehicle and battery storage. And I put those two together because essentially, you know, an EV is just a battery on wheels that provides you two types of value streams. One, it can store energy and two, it can transport you places you want to go. <laughs> but otherwise the EV and the battery have a lot of similarities in terms of being able to spread production and consumption, spread demand and supply and balance them out over time. And so that really helps, you know, storage is the holy grail in in the grid. The, you know, it's the thing that gets you out of that problem that you mentioned of having to have that microsecond balance. And so the, these distributed resources are really now coming into their own economically and physically. Yeah, and of course, not only are they distributed, but they're also intermittent, right? There are times when the wind doesn't blow, and guess what? All night, solar doesn't do anything, and even during the day, during cloud cover, it can fall quite considerably, So, and it can be quite localized. A big old thunderstorm goes across a big solar farm, for instance, right? Oops! big fallout in production. And of course, wind can vary. You know, it's got, it's got trend lines. You can predict it some ways in advance, but it can come and go as well. So that not only are they distributed, which is quite different than the big giant plants that everybody knew where they were and what they were doing. And if you had to, you could talk to them on the phone, find out whether they were up or not. But these things are, you know, scattered every which way and are, are constantly going up and down and losing and gaining productive capacity. And that, that variability 
I think over the next few years, that will turn from a bug into a feature. But if you put yourselves in the shoes of kind of a 1960s era distribution system, control room engineer, operator person, and you think, okay, I have to, I have to coordinate, I have to control what's going on on the grid to balance supply and demand. And I have these big generators and they're always running and I just have to basically tell them to ramp up and down a, a, you know, a bit over a certain amount of time. And that's a very, very different problem from what you just articulated. And so the, I'm not an engineer, but the engineering challenge of this is, is substantial. And it's one of the things that I think is causing a lot of consternation in the industry and a lot of hesitation about distributed resources is the, you know, the kind of, we don't know how to dispatch those things. We can't dispatch those things because they're intermittent and they show up when they show up and we can't dispatch that way. And so part of what's going to have to happen, I think, is a cultural rethinking of the process of operating the grid as the as the grid becomes more heterogeneous in its resources and in its behavior. Um, but that's a real tricky challenge for the engineers. Yeah, I understand also that the way the grids were designed makes perfect sense. Uh, like, say, the lines coming into your house, the assumption was the power was going in, not coming out. But now, where people have rooftop solar or occasionally wind, they could be moving large amounts of power, maybe even more than their house normally consumes, back out into the grid. Yeah. So that's a you know an unanticipated change in network topology. Yeah, exactly. And that's the the change in in the nature of if we want to think in terms of like network topology and think about the grid as a system. And so I'll just start by saying system, although I have a I have an idea of where I want to go with this. So but I'm sure we'll get there that the the agents in the system, you know, in the in the kind of 20th century architecture and 20th century network topology producers are producers you know they have these large-scale generators all they do is they push current on this one-way flow in the direction of consumers and the consumers might be a big factory or an office building or a hospital or an apartment building or a house you know so there's there's industrial commercial and residential customers of different sizes but that's all they are is consumers, right? It's just, as you say, the power's coming in, I flip the switch and the light goes on. And in that 20th century landscape where the technology and the regulations both combined to make electric service, to sell electric service to customers as a commodity service, right? I flip the switch and the light goes on. They're all just electrons. I don't care as long as, you know, as long as I have as they say, uh, cold beer and warm showers. So that's the kind of 20th century landscape and regulation fed into that by embedding this form of pricing to customers that was basically a fixed rate price. And so what the, what the electric utility would do is they, they basically estimate their costs, report their costs to the regulator, 
plus a rate of return on their assets. And that all gets wrapped up in what's called a revenue requirement. And then you go through this elaborate calculation to figure out the price to charge to those three types of customers, industrial, commercial, and residential, that when you add up the expected revenue, it exactly equals the utility's total cost. And so total cost equals total revenue, average cost equals average revenue, and the prices that the customers paid were fixed. Yeah, and even by and by time of day, also, right? Everybody, you, if it was came out seven cents a kilowatt hour, that's what you paid three o'clock in the morning or five o'clock on a Friday afternoon. Exactly, and I think you're you're mentioning the time difference for a very important reason that the actual value of what you're consuming, the value of the electricity, differs considerably from three in the morning to five in the afternoon, and also the cost of producing it. Right at three in the morning. When most everyone's asleep, you crank up that big nuclear power plant and your marginal cost is very, very low. And so the cost of producing that kilowatt hour at 3 a.m. is really low, but the value is also low. But then, but you're paying a, uh, an average price. At 5 p.m., it's the exact opposite. The cost of producing that kilowatt hour is high, both um, in terms of resources and also in terms of the environmental the emissions impacts, but the value to you of that 5 p.m. kilowatt hour is high because that's when you need your air conditioning, but you're still paying that average price that's lower than your value at that time. So you have this mismatch between price and value by doing this averaging. Yeah, and, then that, and particularly now that we have these intermittent sources that are, that are relatively strongly correlated with the diurnal cycle. You know, the wind is on average stronger at night, not by a lot, but by a bit. And of course, solar goes to Zippo at night. So, you know, we have now this temporal pattern. We always had a temporal pattern of usage, and now we have a temporal pattern of supply to lay on top of the temporal pattern of usage. And it's not all that well correlated. The solar better correlated than the wind, but some definite non-correlations there as well. Yeah, and that's one reason why why storage has always been the holy grail and continues to be, because if you can capture that inexpensively produced wind power at 3 a.m. and then save it up and use it in the morning, then you know that's both economically and environmentally that's very beneficial. The other thing that's that's I think going to be a really seismic architectural shift is, you know, in this in this 20th century world where you've got these big generators and it's just this one-way flow from generators to customers. And as customers, we're all paying these fixed average rates. What that means is from an architectural and operational perspective, the way you run the grid is that you you ramp the supply up and down to make sure it meets demand. And so that means that you you do a lot of demand forecasting or what's called load forecasting to anticipate as best you can what demand is going to look like, you know, in half an hour, in a day, in a week, you know, next year, right? So you you do a lot of this demand forecasting so that you can get the supply resources lined up to, and it's called resource adequacy, to be able to meet that demand. But now, as you say, with these intermittent resources, 
supply is going to be more variable and it might be both economically and environmentally beneficial to let supply vary. But then what does that mean? That means that if supply is varying, then what you, you need to be able to vary demand to meet supply as opposed to varying supply to meet demand. And so I think that's going to be a pretty big seismic shift in our thinking of how we run the grid. Yeah, I remember when I think California was the, was it the first big grid to go to time of day pricing for residential customers? It was like quite a while ago, and you know I knew of people that were setting their dryers to run at three o'clock in the morning for that reason. <laughs> we can of course do a whole lot more than just that, right? And I think California during during the you know California energy crisis two thousand two thousand one period, there was a period when. San Diego gas and electric customers could see a real-time price. And it was, I think, as someone who is, is very strongly in favor of dynamic pricing, it was a little bit not ready for prime time, but it was, it was there. They did it. And yeah, it's, you know, you, you schedule what you can to happen at three in the morning. And I think you learn very quickly just how much variation there is in the cost of generating electricity over the course of the day, which of course most people don't think about because we're just habituated to think, okay, it's always there. I have to flip the switch and the light goes on and I don't have to think about it any more than that. But I'm actually in Chicago, I'm on the um, the utility there, ComEd has a residential real-time price rate and that's what we're on. And I have a digital thermostat which I could program, there's this if this then that little plug-in algorithm that I can program into my thermostat to make it price responsive. But I haven't quite debugged my code yet. <laughs> and of course, we know that only one-tenth of one percent of people are ever going to do that. So the thermostats need to have that software built in. You just throw a switch and say, run algorithm B, for instance, right? That's that's how these things will actually go to market. You know, toggling in a program into your thermostat, not going to happen too often. Right. And, and I think automation, and this gets us, you know, to kind of fast forward to the other of the two big areas of, of transformational technology. One is the, the generation technologies that we've been discussing, and especially the distributed resources, and then the storage that we can use to, to save it up and shift it intertemporally. But the other big area of technological change that's part of the energy transition is digitization. And since the mid-2000s, you know, first it started as smart grid, and then it became grid modernization. And the digitization of the electric grid has been going on for about 17 years, slowly, incrementally. And, you know, digital meters, the smart meter for the, you know, to, to meter your consumption at your home is one type of technology to do that. But then, you know, on the on the inside of the grid, the guts of the grid, whether it's in transformers or substations or the the ways that you can do fault detection and and automated repair even within within the wires network itself. And then there's other and this I think this is not my area of, of specialty, but I think there's an area and it's mostly high voltage focused is something called dynamic line rating. 
which is a way that you can use digital sensors to monitor current flow in real time and to see essentially what the capacity is of a given wire. And that if it's operating at less than full capacity, you can re-rate the line to be able to have more flow one way or the other. And so essentially you can increase the total flow of the wire by doing this digital dynamic line rating. So, and yeah, that's pretty cool. <laughs> now, uh, just for a point of information, today, if somebody has rooftop solar at their house, is it communicating in real time back to some control center, or are they just dumping their electrons into the wires? It depends. There is, a, a couple of years ago, the IEEE issued a, a digital inverter standard. So, you know, if you have a, if you have solar panels on your roof, the solar panels capture the sun's rays and turn that into electricity, you know, basically create electrons. But the current that comes out of that is direct current. And so in order to get the, the electricity from your panels onto the grid, you have to change that direct current to alternating current. And so you have to go from a line to a sine wave. And that means going through an inverter. And now the there, um, IEEE has these standards for digital inverters to, as far as I understand it, make that basically make that physics handshake a little more straightforward and easier to monitor and you know easier to to just interconnect those resources onto the grid without without it being disruptive. And so some of them, you know, if they have those digital inverters. There's a lot more visibility into what your panels are doing. And I don't know how widespread those are in use. We're definitely in, we're definitely in a transition process on those because I think otherwise it's, you know, you just put your excess, you put your excess generation out on the grid. And I think you, there's each, each panel installation has a physical limit. You know that you can't put out more than a certain amount because and and the you know the the distribution system engineers will set that so that it doesn't cause any any disruption to the rest of the grid yeah got it that's interesting now when you think about you know systems and systems mediated by computers if the rooftop solar system and its inverter is sending useful telemetry back up the network doesn't do any good unless there's the right software on the other end to make sense out of it. And as a person who spent much of their career building large-scale systems for industries, not the electrical industry, more financial services, and then later the internet itself, you know, we know that some of these, sometimes these big players, their tech, their software technology can be really behind the times. How are the people who are managing the grid these days with respect to the, the currentness of their software and their ability to take advantage of this new telemetry that's coming at them? Yeah, I think your your use of the word telemetry is exactly right and almost immediately gets beyond the extent of my expertise. But, you know, it's important because the the coordination, right, the coordination that has to happen in the grid is very much about phase angles and keeping the angles, because we're talking about waves, keeping all these angles and in within certain ranges so that you don't disrupt the sine waves. So I think it's been it's been a challenge over the past 15 years, but increasingly, you know, a big part of the 
you know, within the utility focus of the grid modernization and smart grid has been building that software capability so that they can take advantage of all these digital sensors and, you know, be able to have more visibility into what's going on in the system and, and to have more fine-grained control of it. And, and I would say different, different utilities are moving with different speeds towards this. And it's definitely still a work in progress. But then you also have at the kind of bleeding edge part of the continuum, you can have things like substation virtualization, where you, you know, you take your, you take your substation and you create a digital twin of it. And you can use that to manage what's going on in your substation. So, you know, it reduces the amount of time you have to spend rolling crews out to to go maintain things out in the field that you can do more remotely and that you know and sort of the famous the famous things that people will say about the digitization of the grid is you know that certainly when i was a kid you know a squirrel falls in the transformer out you know in your backyard and your lights go out and you know it but the utility doesn't know it so you have to call them and say hey my lights are out and even to this day, at least at least now, you know, we tell them on Twitter as opposed to as opposed to having to phone them up. But but they are getting more visibility into knowing when and where there are outages. And so the digitization is really good for reliability outcomes for for customers. So getting a more reliable service. I got to tell you a funny story about that. Here in Virginia, where I live, before they renamed themselves Dominion Power, our local statewide electrical utility was called Virginia Power. And it turned out there was a poor woman who that was her name, Virginia Power. <laughs> and when the lights went out someplace, people would call directory assistance and some percentage of the operators, that's how far back in time it was, this was operators, would hook, would give them the number for poor Miss Virginia Power. <laughs> I don't remember what she did, but it was quite a mess. Right? Oh, I, I, after, after the invention of the answering machine, you know, whenever there's a storm, I would just, you know, turn off my ringer and put the answer machine on to say, no, I'm not that Virginia power. <laughs> <laughs> Call this number, please. Right. Right? <laughs> right. The other, the other area of digital technology that I think is, is really important is on the other side of the transaction, if you will, is on the customer side. So, you know, we've been talking about the kind of within the guts of the wires, the digital sensing and monitoring and automation and in substations and, and transformers. And, you know, the implications of that for the control room and software. There is, I, sh- I should actually say, as long as I'm thinking about the control room and we've talked about distributed energy resources, one area of a lot of research and some, and some new investments right now is in an area called DERMS, which is Distributed Energy Resource Management System. And so this is a a kind of software platform that enables a distribution utility to manage the DER that it has interconnected on its its network. It's still very much a, a centrally controlled paradigm, but it's a software it's a software platform that's intended to try to create better management and coordination and visibility when you have more DER. 
Gotcha. Before we move on to the other side, let me wrap up two other things. Then we'll move on to the the punchline about the demand side stuff. And, you know, first, let's talk a little bit about storage, right? As I was mentioning in our little pregame discussion, I've studied mass electrical storage back in 2004 when it was quite the hot topic. A couple of billion dollars a year were being invested into the area. But my analysis said, not even close to being economical to be able to, the, the case I studied was take overnight nuclear power from northern New England, store it in Brooklyn, and sell it to New York in the middle of the day. You could buy it for half a cent a kilowatt hour. You could sell it for, on average, about 10 cents a kilowatt hour. So a 20 to 1 markup. In those days, the costs of the batteries were just too high. As you talked about earlier, capital costs, this particular business model was totally dominated by the capital cost per kilowatt hour of of storage. And it was off by about a factor of two. You know, since then, there have been considerable advancements in battery power, and there's been some development of pump water storage, et cetera. And of course, as you mentioned, this very interesting thing of these electronic vehicles with their big batteries on wheels that have been created for another purpose with a different set of economics, right? They don't have, they didn't have to make sense for storing mass power, but they might be able to be used for that. What does the uh, storage world look like to you right now? And, and where, you, where do you see it going? I think, I think you're exactly right that in, in 2004, the storage technologies didn't have the energy efficiency to be economical. They definitely weren't ready for prime time. And when I, when I teach, you know, energy economics or environmental economics, then we're talking about the cost of storage, you know, and we talk, I, I usually talk with students about different, different types of storage. So like the battery that you put in your watch or, or the battery even that's in your phone, what you pay per kilowatt hour, for the for the charge you get to to run you know to run your device is you know probably two orders of magnitude one to two orders of magnitude higher than you pay for you know that that seven to ten cents a kilowatt hour that you pay in your house and so the getting storage to be an economical value proposition has been a real a real challenge and I think from a kind of innovation economics perspective, one of the biggest drivers of that has been the development of the lithium ion battery. And so I have to, you know, have to give Tesla a lot of credit for, for the bringing, bringing down the cost of battery production and making the economics of storage much more realistic. And so I, th- I think that we're, we're at the point where, you know, because storage is just, you know, it, it's not a generation technology. It's basically an intertemporal. It's an intertemporal storage technology. You're just shifting, you know, so that you can save some up, so that you can use it later. And that, in and of itself, has a value. And you have to compare it to its opportunity cost, right? The opportunity cost is what's the next best alternative. The next best alternative is I consume from you know, my, from my grid power. And so that's why the comparison is always made to, you know, what do you pay in your house? And so I think the, the storage is, 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 and it's not just the lithium ion battery. And as you say, the, the electric vehicle, because the electric vehicle has two value propositions. The, you know, the vehicle can take me, transport me where I want to go. And that's 
kind of value proposition number one. But increasingly with a digitized grid, that intertemporal use of your car's battery as a way to store energy for future use in some way other than driving is another value proposition that, that I think maybe in a few minutes we can dig into in a little more detail. But I think the, there's all sorts of other storage innovations going on at large scales. And, you know, I mean, I mean, we can think of hydro and, you know, hydro is one of the oldest millennia old technology for providing energy that's not human or animal. But hydro, hydro generation is itself a form of storage because you can, you know, turn it on and off largely at will as long as you've got enough water. And, and when you think at that kind of scale, there's other things that other interesting technologies that people are, are coming up with, like, um, and I, I don't remember the name of the company, but there's one that basically has big cement blocks. And when yeah, it's called Ener- it's called Energy Vault, I believe. Yes, Energy Vault. Yes, excellent. That you heat up you heat up the blocks when electricity is cheap, and then during the day when electricity is expensive, you release the heat. You know, you release the energy from the blocks, and so it's a form of thermal storage. The other one I'm really interested in right now is a company called Form Energy. And they are developing an iron oxide battery, which basically means that the the energy storage is by rusting and unrusting <laughs> a block of, of iron oxide. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, I, I love them. If, I hope that one works because, you know, as you know, as we all know, lithium and some of the other components that are needed in lithium-ion batteries are getting hard to find. I mean, there's enough in the earth, as it turns out, but it's going to be a, a quite a race to get them out fast enough to reach our zero carbon goals. Yeah, lithium and and cobalt. I, there was a there was a good article in the Economist last week about how the interest in batteries and electric vehicles is driving people to look for sources of lithium and for sources of cobalt that aren't in places like the Congo or China. So, you know, it's it's a very dynamic it's a very dynamic space right now. Yeah, and I expect there will be breakthroughs, whether the iron guys, the form energy guys, I think Bill Gates is an investor in them. Whether that works or not, somebody's going to come up with some interesting electrochemistries because yep. there's such, you know, such a gigantic and obvious demand for it, which is very interesting. Now, before we move on to the other side of the question, one other thing I'm going to put forward here is we're talking about a lot of new electronics to make the grid work in this new complex systems environment that it's in where where both production and the consumption is changing radically all the time. It's worth noting and worth thinking about and hope that people are putting enough attention on this. That makes the grid more subject to both cyber attack Mm -hmm. and massive failures from exogenous events like massive solar flares. Yes. Yeah, solar flares, terrorist attacks from electromagnetic pulse. There, there's a substantial attention to cybersecurity in in the kind of grid modernization and smart grid focus. And a lot of it, you know, there's some overlap with with kind of what I think of as good internet principles. So things like having open standards. I guess I I tend to think about these questions from, I guess I would call it a Linux perspective, right? The idea that 
you have a, a kind of shared set of code and common interfaces. And then, you know, you design your security around the common interfaces. And that that's, that's a better way to achieve security than to have proprietary architectures. Of course, the, the electricity industry is completely a proprietary architecture industry. You know, ever since, you know, 1895, when Westinghouse and Tesla went up to Niagara Falls and they built the entire, you know, Niagara Falls generating station basically as a bespoke artisanal engineering project. And ever since then, it's kind of been, you know, this 140 years of one-off type design. And so the idea of standardization, modularity, open interfaces, you know, some of the, the, the kind of deep internet principles that we're used to is a cultural shift in this industry. But the, the cybersecurity is definitely part of part of the, the the planning and the thinking and the design principles that go into thinking about grid modernization. And some of it is, I mean, some of it is very deep and very important, you know, having airlock, airlock, airlocks on certain devices that, you know, just can't be on the internet. And some of it is as simple as, you know, when you buy that digital thermostat, the first, you shouldn't be able to use it you know, put it up in your home and turn it on, the first thing you should have to do is change the default password. <laughs> I mean, so some of it's as simple as that, but there is a, a very wide range of cybersecurity practice. And one one challenge, I think utilities are getting comfortable with it, but one big challenge is this is an area that is not very familiar to regulators. And so when the, the public utility commissioners, you know, have when you know, utilities come in and, and propose, you know, okay, we want this gold-plated consulting company to come in and do our cybersecurity best practices audit. You know, if you're a regulator, how do you, do you have the background to be able to assess whether or not that's a prudent investment? And so, so getting, getting the kind of cybersecurity utility regulator public interest, public service, constellation all lined up. I think that's that's going to be a big challenge is just getting the information and awareness promulgated. Yeah, those culture change things are harder than they sound, right? These oh, people yes. have, they've been doing a good job. I mean, our, our electrical grid in the United States and, you know, Canada is remarkable on a worldwide basis. But, and so they, you know, can rightly pat themselves on the back saying we've kept the grid up for a hundred years with, you know, a few intermittent failures, but overall pretty damn good and you're asking us to change hmm, that could take a while yeah. yeah change cultural change is is definitely challenging and especially when it's in an area where you don't have subject matter expertise and a lot of these digital technology and you know especially the cybersecurity issues it's like you know we know that we don't know that but that means that we don't necessarily know how best to find a path forward. So that, that is a challenge. Yeah. All right. Well, let's now move on to where this story gets even more interesting. <laughs> you and some of your collaborators have worked on an idea called TESS, the Transactive Energy Service System Platform. And as I understand it from your presentation at SFI and some reading I did yesterday and today, one of the key ideas here is that 
the demand side also becomes automated and can com- and communicate over the network and, and do stuff. Is that one of the core interesting ideas that's added now to the mix? Yes, and that, exactly. And I mean, this, for just speaking as, as a researcher, this my interest in this topic came out of a topic, and this goes back to the 1960s, well before my time, but, but certainly by the time I was working on this in the early 2000s, there was a very rich economics literature and very rich policy conversation around dynamic pricing and the idea that that it would be economically beneficial to have pricing to retail customers that more closely matches the way costs vary over time. The way we discussed that, you know, at three in the morning, generating electricity is cheap. And at five in the afternoon, it's expensive. And there's with these these, the old style peakers, there was more emissions. And so it was also more environmentally costly. So what if what if we had dynamic pricing that allowed prices to vary in ways that more accurately reflected actual costs? And and so that dynamic pricing conversation had been going on since the time of Marcel Boiteux in the early 1960s. But you know, by the by the 1990s and certainly around you know the the period of regulatory restructuring in the mid 90s, there's a lot of conversation about you know fixed prices are one of the one it's one of the vectors of inefficiency in the regulated system, and we need more dynamic pricing to give better better information and better signals to consumers so that we have better demand side incentives. And at the time, we didn't yet really have digital technology on the radar. But then by about, you know, 2004, 2005, and we all are starting to have these cell phones, you know, not, not smartphones yet, but, but cell phones. And so you have digital technology in your pocket. And so, you know, if you're on the train on the way to work, you can receive a text message that tells you, Hey, it's 8 a.m. tomorrow at 8 a.m. Here's what the price of electricity is going to be. And so you could program your thermostat, you know, go home that night and program your thermostat to, uh, you know, take advantage of some of the cost saving opportunity that you have. And so that's, I think, kind of one of the origin stories. The other, the other origin story is at, at about that same time period, I was working with Vernon Smith, who as an experimental economist who, in the 1960s, founded the, the field of experimental economics and in 2002 won the Nobel Prize in economics for, for his work. And shortly after that, he and I were working together and trying to work with regulators to have them use experimental economics as a way to test bed some of their regulatory design proposals or market design proposals before you actually release them in the wild. And, uh, you know, this is when we were all still very much having the hangover from the California electricity crisis, when too many market designs were released in the wild <laughs> without proper testing. And, and a lot of people suffered the consequences of that. And so experimental economics is, is a paradigm. It's a, it's a methodology in economics where you create a laboratory setting to test a specific hypothesis. And so in this case, it might be a market hypothesis. And so you know, you divide half the room into buyers, half the room into sellers, 
and you tell the buyers what their values are, you tell the sellers what their costs are. Most importantly, you tell them what the rules are in the market and then you let them trade and see what happens. And then you might run another treatment where you use a different set of rules and you see how that set of rules perform versus the first set of rules. And so I think if you put these together with digital technology, that's where you get this idea of test or transactive energy that you can automate your energy related devices in the home to respond to price signals. And, you know, the, the kind of received wisdom in electricity is, oh, people don't want dynamic prices. They don't want to have to sit there and twiddle the thermostat to try to save money. And the beautiful thing about digital technologies is that it reduces those transaction costs because you can automate your preferences into your thermostat. Basically, you know, have some algorithm that, that you just plug it right in and say, okay, here's, here's how I want you to behave. And, and then it turns that, it can turn that into bids. And, you know, in this particular time period, my thermostat is willing to pay eight cents a kilowatt hour for that electricity. And so you submit that as a bid. And so your thermostat, your EV, your water heater can participate in a local market on your behalf without your having to stand there and do the, do the work manually. Yeah, and in fact, you don't probably even have to worry about the price too much. You might set some parameters, like you'd say, make it so it 99.99% of the time doesn't get any colder than 65 in my house. And you figure out how to do it, right? As an right. example of the kind of interface that a human could understand, which could then be converted into bids behind the scenes by the right software. Yeah, and I think and my my collaborators and I haven't done this, but I think it's one of the next types of things that we will do is rather than putting it, because I, I think of it, you know, very Boolean, you know, if, you know, here, I, I, here's the, the temperature set point I want. And if the price goes above, say, nine cents, then change my temperature set point by two degrees. Right. So I think of it in that very Boolean way, but it may well be that, that more the way you just described is very amenable to a machine learning approach. And, and so I suspect we will see more of that kind of machine learning, just you know, gathering data about what's going on in the market and then taking your parameters and basically fitting, fitting your parameters to get the kind of best joint outcome of whatever you want in terms of savings on your bill or how much of what you're consuming is a low carbon, you know, whatever your preferences are. I think, I think machine learning will, will, will be an approach that does what you just described. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Now, you mentioned the need to test, right? Because one of the things that we know about complex systems is you can't really get there by st static mathematical analysis, particularly where the players are in general, but even more so where the players are agentic, you know, people who have, they have personal goals. I want to save money on my electric bill, but I don't want my toes to get cold in my living room, right? <laughs> or the person on the other side who's trying to maximize their profit. And so when you have, you know, network competition between agentic enterprises and many of them coming and going through a intermediation platform like a grid and, and a market attached to a grid, you can't really know what's going to happen, right? How do you, how do you yeah. test for something like that? 
I, I think you're exactly right. And, and you said it really well, because usually the way I say it is much more jargony. <laughs> you know, it's because once you have all of these, you know, agentic, you know, these agents with their own individual preferences and their preferences are subjective and they're, they're private, they're personal to them. You know, I don't know, I don't know what the, tr the trade-off is for you between you know, warm beer and cold showers and saving money on your bill. You know, I don't know that, you know that. And that's true for every single one of us. And so when you take all of these many, many, many people with their private subjective preferences and their own projects and you put them all together and they're all using this electric system as an input into the variety of things that they want to do, it's a very complex system. I mean, and I, you know, technically speaking, complex meaning not deterministic. You know, you can't necessarily begin at point A and deduce your way to a known specific certain outcome, right? And so, how do you test in that kind of environment? What my my collaborator David Chasson, who's at Slack National Laboratory at Stanford. He, several years ago, when he was at Pacific Northwest National Laboratory, he wrote a agent-based modeling platform called GridLab-D. And, and so that's what, what he and his NG, engineers use, is they use GridLab-D as an agent-based modeling platform. And so in agent-based modeling, what you do is you're defining who, who all the agents are. And so in this case, it would be like, okay, suppose we have 100 houses. And we can we can say how big the houses are, how many kilowatts of you know, of electricity capacity they usually consume, and suppose we have a couple office buildings and and some other stuff. So we have this system with these these agents in it, and then we put solar panels on top of half of the houses, and so they now have a production capability, and you basically then set some parameters and run the model. And so it's not a closed form. And I, I come from economics. So for an economist, in theory, you know, mathematically, we're always looking for the closed form solution, right? So here's my mathematical model. I'm going to solve for P star and Q star for, you know, equilibrium price and quantity. And I'm going to get this nice closed form solution. Whereas complex systems are very open form. And, and because they're not deterministic and nonlinear, you can't, you can't do that closed form kind of calculation of equilibrium. So agent-based simulation and just running thousands and thousands and thousands of iterations, and then you change the parameters and run thousands and thousands and thousands of iterations. So it's, it's a more inductive, or I guess if I'm channeling my Charles Peirce you know, late 19th century philosophy, I would call it abductive way. You know, it's not deductive because you can't necessarily get to that single deterministic, you know, here's, here's the solution we're going to get. But you can basically get an inductive slash abductive idea that, you know, 95% of the time the solutions we're going to get are going to be in this range from A1 to A2. Gotcha. Yeah, for people who want to learn more about agent-based modeling, we had a really good episode back on EP90 with Josh Epstein, where we went. he went really deep in agent-based modeling as applied to the social sciences. So there's another resource for our listeners out there, because this is a fascinating field, one that we use a lot at the Santa Fe Institute. 
Okay. Now, the other thing, of course, you can do is smaller scale experiments. You were involved, I believe, with the Olympic Peninsula Testbed Project? Yes. Why don't you tell the uh, audience about that? Sure. And this was, again, back in, in the mid-2000s. And at the time I, I was working with Vernon Smith, we were doing experimental economics, very much focused on test bedding, market designs, and, and policy designs before they go out in the wild. We went and did a study session at Pacific Northwest National Lab right at the time when they were starting to develop this idea of transactive energy. And they were working with Bonneville Power Administration. Bonneville's a big uh, federal hydroelectric facility in in the Northwest, and they operate a big you know, transmission network and, and then connect up to distribution network to go out to the local public utility districts out on the Olympic Peninsula, you know, way up in the in the northwest corner of Washington State. And the public utility district up there, the, the PUD, was doing their demand forecasting and finding, you know, that they were expecting their demand to increase over time because it's a very beautiful place. It's lovely, pristine. People wanted to move there. But they were concerned that they would soon exceed their wires, their distribution feeder wires capacity. And, you know, it's beautiful and pristine. And most of the, most of the surface area of the Olympic Peninsula is also a national park. So the last thing you want to do is do the traditional utility thing, which would have been to quote unquote, put iron in the ground and build a power plant. And so they were working with PNL and Bonneville to think about other approaches to, to better match supply and demand. And so they were starting to think in what we today would think of in terms of demand flexibility. How can we harness demand flexibility to be a better match with, you know, given our supply constraints? And so we, you know, we were out doing an experimental economics session and did a this double auction market experiment, and the the PNL engineers were like, "Oh, hey, that looks like it would fit really well with what we're trying to do in this in this project with Bonneville and the local PUD." So, I started working with them on this Olympic Peninsula testbed demonstration project, and it was a field experiment. And the field experiment had two components, at least the, the portion of it that, that I'm going to describe here had two components. One was, uh, so we had 130 households participate, and every household received a digital two-way programmable communicating thermostat. And this is in kind of 2005, so your, your kind of most common digital thermostat at the time, you know, if you went to Home Depot and bought one, you'd be able to program in particular time slots. So like, you know, I want to go to work at eight. So turn the temperature, the heat temperature down. I come back at five. So turn the heat temperature up and, you know, that kind of thing. This programmable thermostat was much more, had much more digital intelligence embedded in it. And so we we could program in their contract choices. And that was the second component of the experiment was that they they could choose, they got to, to select from sort of most favorite to least favorite, which contract type they wanted, whether they wanted to have a fixed price contract, a time of use, you know, peak off peak contract, or a real time price contract. 
And then we had a control group that only had the thermostat and they just, you know, the, the, the kind of contract experiment was a layer on top of their existing bill. And we allocated each of them to one of the treatment groups in the contract. And then we had this control group that didn't have any, any particular contract layer on top of their existing bill. So just, and I, I mentioned all that just to say, you know, this is a pretty standard laboratory experimental design. But what was interesting was, you know, we wanted to randomize the, take the 100 and, I guess 110 households that weren't going to be in the control group and randomize them across the three different contract types. But the, the utility wasn't so keen on that idea. So we asked them to, to pick which one do you want to be in. And interestingly, the two third, after learning about, you know, we prepared educational materials, uh, about two thirds of them wanted to be in the real time price group. You know, and this just completely runs counter to the received wisdom in the industry, right? Because the received wisdom in the industry is that, you know, people don't want price variability. They, they want the, the, their bills to be low and stable and they don't want price variability. But of course, what's true now, if you have a digital technology that you can use to control and manage your bill by responding to prices without your having to be there, you know, twiddling the thermostat yourself. You're like, hey, you know, the thermostat can do this for me. So sure, I'll take the I'll take the, re- the real time price. So anyway, we 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 divvied them up into the three groups and ran them for a year. I was in charge of, of designing the the real time market, and we did it as a double auction. So each of the thermostats of the, the participating households, they could each submit a bid every, and it was every five minutes. You know, So the bid is essentially the thermostat communicating into the market. Here's what I'm willing to pay. Here's what I'm willing to pay. Here's what I'm willing to pay. And different people would set different thresholds, right? So different trigger prices. And so you would get responsiveness, demand responsiveness, demand flexibility out of having those thermostats participating on behalf of their owners in this local energy market. And it worked really well. They saved about, the real-time market, they saved about 20% on their bill. They had a slight overall increase in their energy consumption, but the overall, the system also did a really good job of managing the, the, the wires capacity constraint. And so, so that was the origins of transactive energy. And Ever since then, my, my collaborator, Dave, and I have been working to keep moving, moving along with this because it is a very, it is a very original approach to demand flexibility. And, and now with, with these distributed energy resources, there's a lot more, there's a lot more going on than just thermostats and water heaters. Indeed. Now, on the flip side of it, you hear horror stories like the the big freeze down in Texas where people got $30,000 electrical bills, et cetera. Now, is, uh, could it be that there's a power law distributed or fat tail distribution of the effects of these market-based systems and that if you took a long enough time frame, maybe people wouldn't be better off and particularly those people who are averse to a big financial shock? Yeah, I, I do think... Uh, that was the the winter storm Uri in 2021 was a big learning event for everyone. And I, I, the, the Texas legislature has essentially taken the type of market that I just described that we did in, in the Olympic Peninsula, and they have made that illegal. 
which I, I, in my opinion, is throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And I think the real, well, actually, <laughs> I have so many thoughts about this. I'm not quite sure where to start. There were, there were really two companies, retail companies in Texas that were offering residential customers a real-time price wholesale pass-through type contract. One was called Gritty and one was called Octopus Energy. And Octopus Energy did, you know, I think they they kind of had a little bit of a better financial hedge situation. And so they were able to say to their customers, all right, we're going to cap, we're going to cap your bills. That, you know, you're only going to be responsible for a certain portion of this, this high run up in the bills during the winter storm. Whereas I don't think Gritty was in that kind of financial position. The thing that really breaks my heart is that Gritty had already announced to their customers that they were going to be introducing an insurance product, right? And I think, right, if, if you take the analogy between buying electricity and having that price variability and buying a plane ticket, right, where you have some probability that your trip might get canceled and you don't want to get stuck holding the bill for that, that plane fare. And so what do you do? You, you buy your plane ticket and you buy, you know, non-refundable because it's cheapest. And we all, we've all learned since 1978 that that's how airplane customers behave is they buy the cheapest tickets. And, but then you buy a travel insurance contract on top of that. And so I think that's one approach that you can take. And it, it's kind of like you were saying earlier about sort of guardrails or setting your parameters so that, you know, your, your comfort level never, you know, temperature never goes above this or below this. You can also do it so that your spending never goes above this or below this. And one way you can do that is by having this, this price insurance that you layer on top of the real time market. And the problem with, with Gritty was that they were going to start that selling that insurance contract to their customers on March 1st and the storm was, you know, February 14th and then they went bankrupt. So, so I think the, 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 the challenge for places like or situations like that winter storm Yuri is twofold. Number one, getting the financial instruments and financial markets right so that you have enough opportunities for parties to hedge and to basically lay off risk on people who are willing to, to bear the risk. And residential customers, for the most part, are not willing to bear a whole lot of risk. And But at the same time, create an opportunity for them to choose to accept price signals because we know that those price signals enable them to save money for which they have to take some risk. But that also better aligns their, their behavior and their incentives with the underlying true actual cost in the system. So I think it, it, it's a tricky it's a tricky situation, but just outlawing a wholesale pass-through real-time market is not the right approach. Yeah, this is what, you know, economists would call institutional design question, right? Precisely. So why don't you talk about that a little bit, how what you as a economist who has spent your at least a fair part of your last many years working in this space, what are some of the things that regulators, practitioners, the public should keep in mind when thinking about institutional design to be able to take advantage of this new opportunity? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. It's a multifaceted question. And, and 
part of the challenge is, I think, because we are coming out of our 20th century experience, right? So I think our, our reaction, our reaction to technological change is very historically contingent, right? So we're used to this 20th century, you know, large scale central generation, centralized control of what goes on in the grid. The users around the edge, around the distribution edge are just passive consumers and they flip the switch and the light goes on and pay a fixed price and don't think about it. Whereas now, you know, the technology landscape is so different with so much more diverse generation technologies, the increasingly economical storage technologies, all the digital devices that we have to control and automate our response to all sorts of things, including price signals. So it's a very different landscape, but yet our preconceptions about regulation and regulation's role as consumer protection and the utility as vertically integrated monopoly, our preconceptions around all of that are, are slower to change than the technology is. So, so technology is way out ahead of us. And, um, and I think the institutions evolve more slowly. And part of that is just, you know, humans discomfort with risk and, you know, kind of defaulting to the status quo. And the thing that, that is, I think, going to be important and challenging is a kind of willingness to reevaluate those hard questions. Like, with these new technologies and the way they change the economies of scale and generation and economies of scope and the way they change what consumers can do and how consumers can use digital technologies to compare prices and, and protect themselves in, in the sense of consumer protection, how should the regulatory footprint change, right? Should the, should the regulator, what, 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 what should regulation be doing differently and how should it be doing it differently? That's, I think, one of the fundamental regulatory institutional design questions. And then on the flip side of that, the utility business model is you know, the, the vertically integrated firm where the generation, the wires and the retail are all in one firm. You know, that's an artifact of, of the, the early 20th century. And in some states, it's been kind of chipped away on the generation side because in some states, uh, we have wholesale power markets because of the technological changes of things like the controlled cycle gas turbine making, you know, generation markets more competitive. But in many states, they still have that vertically integrated footprint and where whereas the underlying economics would suggest that the utility business model should really match what we call the natural monopoly footprint, right? The the places where where regulation is is still deemed to be an important protection against monopoly behavior. And so, you know, the implication of this is that the utility footprint should shrink to be Utilities should shrink to become the best possible wires company that they can. And the rest can all be done through competitive markets. And those markets still have to have some design, you know, markets require rules 
and rules emerge organically, but they also are designed and they change over time as conditions change. So it's a very dynamic, the institutional design is a very dynamic and fluid thing in this industry because you're coming from this preconception that's so heavily administered and regulated. Yep, yep. And yet we do know it's possible because, as you point out, several states have gone to wholesale power generation. And I think generally it's worked, hasn't it? It has generally. And, it's it, you know, it, nothing is ever perfect. And, and I think this was one of the one of the failings of the, the California restructuring leading into the California electricity crisis in 2000, 2001 was this kind of benchmarking of the notion of quote unquote, perfect competition. And I think we've learned a lot in the 23 years since then. And that, you know, having, having a little more epistemic humility, (laughs) realizing that we can't know it all and we can't achieve perfection, but that we can do something. And my favorite thing to do here is to quote former Texas PUC chair and FERC chairman, Pat Wood, who is very fond of saying that competition on its worst day will do a better job of protecting consumers than I did as a regulator on my best day. So you know, I, I think that's, you know, that's for me, that's the kind of right, that's the right benchmark. Right? It's not the perfection, but it's the compared to what, right? So compared, yeah. compared to regulation, how well do these markets do? And, you know, I, I have a litany of, of, institutional design critiques I could make of wholesale power markets, but in general, they have performed better than the counterfactual of had they stayed in a vertically integrated structure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It seems to me just sort of think about this a little bit, you know, one potential role for the regulators is to, you know, require that the institutional designs trim off the tail risk for people who aren't capable of bear- bearing yep. tail risk, you know, the big fluctuations on the rare event, you know, your grandmother gets a bill for $30,000. That's the regulator should make sure that the system has things like you described, which is an insurance policy that in the aggregate works fine for big insurance companies and Wall Street firms that want to back that pool. And they can afford, you know, month to month or year to year fluctuations so long as the the nickels and dimes add up to more than the, the hits over time. Mm-hmm. While grandma doesn't get exposed to the once every hundred year chance of a $30,000 electric bill. You know, that doesn't seem too hard to, to envision. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. I, and it's a it's a lesson that we learn by looking across different industries. And so, you know, if you look at financial markets or some other industries, you can think in terms of this tail risk framing that you just articulated. And but but that's a very that's a, a new it's a new framing and a new mindset in an electricity regulation context. So I think that's exactly the right way to go. And and I think it's up to those of us who work in this space to uh, help move us there. Yeah, and I'll, I will pound the table on one of my pet peeves. One of the reasons people in traditional analytical frames don't get it is they te- tend to think in terms of Bayesian statistical distributions, bell curves, right? And you can say, oh, this is a seven sigma event. It'll happen once every 10,000 years. 
well, wrong people, a tremendous number of emergent complex systems fluctuations have turned out to be power law distributions, much fatter tails. Sorry, this was, uh, I still recall being almost wanting to throw a knife at the TV back in 2008, where some CEO of a big financial services company says, how could we be held responsible? This was a 16 Sigma event, i.e. once in the history of the universe, right? When if you looked at it from a fat tailed, a a reasonable fat tailed distribution analysis, it came out to about once in a hundred years, which is almost exactly what it was, right? Since the you know, the next biggest one since the Great Depression. So, you know, people locked into the Statistics 101 Bayesian analysis tend to not have a good intuitive feel for tail risk. I I will join you in pounding the table on tail risk. (laughs) Indeed. Well, there's lots of other interesting things in your work, but I think we're just about up to our time. I really, you know, really want to thank you for an extraordinarily interesting session about the grid and where it may be going. Thanks, Jim. I really enjoyed the conversation. Audio production and editing by Andrew Blevins Productions. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.